So Jason and Jacob. So Jason Sorry, and Jacob. Yeah, you're saying Jason. Jason. <laughs> We're getting some strong, some strong B-roll, uh, B-roll content. Well, it'll 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 be our it'll be our cold opener. Hello, and welcome to Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcheson. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon. Adam, what's going on? Uh, not much. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Have you uh, signed up for your referral program link yet? Uh, I have. I, I do have a referral link that I have sent nice. to you. Some, I, I, I prefer the dark social method of recruiting. Okay. What, what is that? Dark social being uh, social media and, and sort of you know private group chats and iMessage and oh, okay. WhatsApp and Got it. things like that. Got it. Social that you can't see uh, and you, you can't really <laughs> or you can, in this case you can track it because that, that's the purpose of the referral link. But uh, you can't tell <laughs> how normally. you can't tell how many people I sent it to who didn't click on it. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Um, well, listeners, if you're looking to get your own referral link, you can actually sign up at refer.fm forward slash floor nine. Uh, once you're there and you've signed up for your personal referral link, you can share with your friends, family, either in the dark social like Adam or just publicly like I do on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, and once you get three referrals, you get access to a limited edition floor nine t-shirt. Uh, so, Go sign up. Let us know if you have any questions, and there will be additional links in the show notes uh, for anyone that is interested in joining our referral program for Membership March. Um, so I'm pretty excited about it. We'll see what um, uh, we can do to help grow the show here. Uh, next up in this week's main conversation, we are talking to Jason Schulweis, the head of brand partnerships at The Morning Brew, and Jacob Donnelly, the general manager of B2B at The Morning Brew and the founder of a media operator, to discuss the business of newsletters and the recent entrance of Twitter and Facebook into the newsletter space. I am pretty excited about that conversation, uh, and Adam, we did kind of nerd out about this creator space uh, that we are tangentially in through, through podcasting. Uh, so definitely stick around for that conversation later on in the show. But first, Adam, as we do, the news of the week. So HBO Max will debut its cheaper ad-supported tier in June. Uh, we know this is something that has been in development, and there's no price point yet, but we're probably looking at the $9.99 monthly subscription range for that ad-supported tier. Yeah, I mean, uh, AVODs are a huge growth market. A lot of consumers are uh, okay with uh, ad-supported ad television, as we, we know from the history of television, and especially as we get into these later stages of, of streaming, where there's now a ton of entrants in the marketplace. Uh, consumers probably have their you know top one to three streaming services already as they add more and as there are shows and movies on other services that they want to check out they might be more inclined to to take it at a lower price with ads uh especially if they're not sure you know maybe there's only one or two things they want to see they want to get it as for as low a price as possible so this totally makes sense hbo max from the beginning was a little bit hamstrung by their high price coming in at 14.99 per month um which was something that they was a relic of their old business model they had to do that because of their deals with um, cable companies uh, around the in the U.S. and around the world that are still obviously super important partners for Warner Media, um, but this new AVOD tier is a 
I guess, considered contractually a different product. So they can, they can then lower the price. I'm really hoping that they go more like 999 is the obvious price point, but I think they should go more aggressive. I think they should go all the way down to 799. The 999 price is fine, but it's, I think, too close to rivals in the market that are, are ad free. It makes them more competitive. I would go, I would go aggressive. The offering itself is a little interesting. So there are a few caveats here. One is that ads will not play during HBO original titles. However, it does raise the question of how many ads will the average HBO Max AVOD tier person actually see? Because I, I don't know about you, but for me personally, at least, I think that pretty much everything I watch on HBO aside from maybe one or two movies a month, is an HBO original. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know there's the, there's the larger Max catalog of, of other Warner content and a lot of that back catalog stuff. So that will have ads on it. But it's a weird thing to think about my own usage and be like, I could probably switch to the AVOD tier and actually not see very many ads at all, which is an mm -hmm. interesting calculation to think about. Right. I was. I, this is the one thing I've been thinking about is where are they going to put the advertisements? Because to, to, to your point, when I watch HBO, it's HBO Originals. And normally in an HBO Original, like they do have that maybe two minutes of trailers for yep. other HBO Originals before a show. So maybe that's going to be the place where they're going to start swapping out like large... It'll essentially just be pre-roll and it won't be inserted into the actual show itself. Right. So in that case, sure. That makes sense. It doesn't really you know, mess with the product and it, it, you know, you are still showing ads to those people that, you know, Hulu has, has done that with some of their, even on the Hulu ad free tier, there are some shows like Grey's Anatomy that do carry ads and they're, they're just pre-roll. So maybe HBO will do the same thing. The other caveat is that the Warner media day and date releases that were announced, uh, at, in, in, at the end of last year, um, they will of, of movies that will be released in theaters and on HBO Max same day. Those will not be available at all to AVOD customers, uh, which I think is smart in that it uh, it does create a, a more separation between those products. And obviously, that is some of the most premium content that HBO Max has. That's an interesting like delineation and definitely needed because otherwise, what would be the benefit of paying that fourteen ninety nine for the? ad free tier if we don't even know where the ads are going to run and potentially <laughs> there won't be that many ads in the uh hbo originals which i feel like is the most viewed content on the hbo max platform so we'll see but we do know that there's a lot of brand interest so at&t um claimed at an investor conference that it has about 80 million dollars in upfront media commitments already from brands uh so it seems like this is a highly sought after uh environment for brand advertisers to start running and testing out advertisements uh which we'll see how it all works out i think it'll be um a better outcome than quibi uh for for sure <laughs> no i mean i think i you know regardless of exactly the details here i think it will be successful i think that it um you know they have a shot hbo max i think is in general is a great product they have a shot at you know really competing with the likes of, of hulu for being the the premium first stop uh avod uh service i think yes absolutely and like you said we'll see how this all rolls out uh in, in the coming months uh in june so we'll be reporting back with an update uh uh, in in june but next up adam we have some news from 
famed social audio app Clubhouse. Uh, Clubhouse has launched an accelerator program that is promising participants either brand deals or a monthly stipend of about $5,000 uh, to support them while they create shows for the Clubhouse platform. I think this is pretty interesting. You know, it, Clubhouse is really starting to invest in the creators on their platform uh, and starting with how to get them paid. I think as we've seen, paying creators in a sustainable way is always a challenge for social platforms. Um, and it seems like Clubhouse is really focusing on that challenge first to make sure their creators are happy that they're paid uh, to help grow its platform You know, even larger um, down the road. Uh, interesting though, is that what the brand deal side of it like I can see them, you know, doing like a stipend of you know five thousand dollars from like their VC money. Be like, hey, you know, come here, create here, uh, help us grow as a platform, and kind of you know create that content. But the brand deals I thought was kind of interesting because you know from our conversations, you know, over watching Clubhouse for these past couple months, uh, there were no really brand opportunities. Uh, so I'm curious to see how this is going to play out as details are still a bit you know, murky around what a brand deal might be with a clubhouse creator. Yeah. Uh, considering that, that up until this announcement, they had been saying, uh, really not answering the phone for brands. Uh, I'm very curious to see how they're going to pivot from that into, uh, you know, doing these brand deals. I hope they have a, a good sales team who understands how to speak to brands. Uh, because as we, we know, that could be a stumbling block for a lot of startups, uh, that, you know, there obviously is interest, but if they don't know how to, uh, to work with brands, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. I think this is smart in that um, they there's about to be a lot of competition for them with uh, Twitter spaces and whatever Facebook is uh, cooking up. And I think this is a good way to sort of backstop against uh, that competition while they figure out what monetization on the platform is going to look like long term. It also implies that they want to be the ones to help creators monetize on their platform as opposed to, you know, sort of... Uh, but like third party agencies, third party agencies, and just you know the the traditional influencer plays on platforms emerged organically without the platform's real you know cooperation, uh, let alone uh, support. And a lot of the platforms at this point that where that happened are sort of envious of that relationship, right? Like they they wish that they owned the creator relationship because there's there's money to be made there, and uh, they're that's being made by people who are not them. So I think that uh, you know clubhouses one of a handful of sort of newer generation social and social-ish platforms that ar arose in this this more modern creator ecosystem. And, you know, the fact that they're thinking about that from the beginning, I think, is is smart and important. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it means that there will be, you know, creator tools for monetization coming from them. Uh, the question is, how quickly will they they ship those uh, and, and scale that to the entire audience, uh, both on the on the direct sort of payment side as well as on the brand side? Um, how how quickly will that happen versus you know what Twitter is about to launch in in the next month or so? So I think there's uh, it's it's a hot space. There's going to be a lot of competition, and I think that uh, a year from now we'll look back on this and it'll be pretty obvious what the playing field looks like. I, I think this is one of the most hands-on uh, creator prep like uh, programs that I've I've seen from a social company or a platform. Meaning, you know, in the article, like they were stating that they'll help you get equipment, they'll help you get training, education, even like a babysitter. Uh, it's really anything that you need help with in order to kind of create a show on their platform, they're willing to help support you in literally anything, you know, 
even to go outside of what's available on like the clubhouse platform and provide expertise there. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It shows a commitment from them to be like, yeah, we want you to be successful on our platform. Um, That's that's kind of incredible. I mean, that's because it's an accelerator. It's going to be a limited number of people so they can, they can afford to say that. (laughs) The the solution to affordable (laughs) childcare is clubhouse will pay for your babysitters. (laughs) I'm going to become a a clubhouse influencer just so I can get a full-time cat sitter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We, you know, listen, we can we can do that with floor nine. But uh, to start off, they're they're accepting twenty people, like you said. So it is small. Uh, the the deadline for an application, if anybody is interested, is on March thirty first, uh, and you can check it out on on their website. So more to come here uh, in this social space. It's always a fun conversation as we start to see Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces go head to head. That is going to wrap up this week's news. Next up, we're going to head into the main conversation with Jacob and Jason from The Morning Brew. Listeners, welcome to the main conversation of this week's episode. With us today, we have Jason Schulweiss and Jacob Donnelly of The Morning Brew. Jason and Jacob, welcome to Floor 9. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're we're excited to have you both here. Uh, so before we start today's topic of conversation, can you just give us a, a little background on both of yourselves and what you do over at The Morning Brew? Yeah, I can. Uh, this is Jason. I'll start. Um, so I am the head of brand partnerships at Morning Brew. Been at Morning Brew a little under two years. Um, and prior to that, have spent 12 years in the media industry at a variety of other uh, publishers, agencies, and media consultancies. Jacob, how about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a GM of B2B at Morning Brew. So I oversee retail brew, marketing brew, and emerging tech brew, uh, as well as future verticals that we will be launching, but I will not be revealing today. Um, oh, man, you just can't lead with I that. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's 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 coming. Um, so yeah, been been at Morning Brew only for four months now. Uh, before this, I was at Coindesk for four years, which is a crypto media company. Uh, and by night, I write a newsletter called, actually a newsletter and podcast called A Media Operator, where I uh, dig into building digital media businesses. Fantastic. Well, just to kick things off, can you guys just give us a little bit of background on the newsletter industry? Yeah, I think even if you look at the trends over the past like decade, where media was at one point was this kind of like destination-based media, or you know what I call like the era of destination, which was all these dot-coms and homepages. And like I worked at Yahoo in 2010, and we were selling, you know, this 300 by 250 for hundreds of thousands of dollars every single day because it reached hundreds of millions of people. Now there was very little engagement. There was very little sticking power. And so that was not necessarily like something that was going to last. There was a new, there was kind of like a crop of media companies that came into prominence right afterwards. Um, called, that's kind of like the old guard of new media at this point. Like, you know, the thrillists, the vices, the voxes, the buzzfeeds, et cetera that initially tried to replicate that model. But then with the rise of all of the, you know, the social networks, content started to get pushed to where consumers were. Now that that type of like organic reach was still also short lived because Twitter and Facebook were like, you know, we could actually make money on this. And so organic reach went out the window um, and it all became paid. And we're all very familiar with that kind of like arbitrage type model. Now, I think what you've seen over the last 18 to 24 months, especially and I think contributes to the rise of newsletters is this idea of like the era of delivery, where there is content now that gets delivered directly to you, directly to your inbox, directly to your ears. This podcast, for example, those, you know, those mediums are less intermediated. 
um, and therefore provide a much more direct relationship between these new media brands that are really brands in and of themselves and consumers. And I think that type of direct relationship is, is everything. I also think it has to do a little bit with um, people's exhaustion with content. Uh, there is so much content out there. And, you know, when, when a news event happens, it happens and then news starts coming out immediately. And then the New York Times has a quick story and then they do a follow-up story. And 24 hours later, you've read like seven stories about like the same <laughs> news event that, you know, the nice thing about a newsletter is it hits at a schedule, right? So, if, if a newsletter goes out at 9 a.m. and a news event happens at 9.01, we will have not talked to our audience about that until the next morning at 9 a.m. because we hit the schedule that we, we, we work with. So that means that we are able to, A, give the best information to our audience rather than just a quantity of information. And it means that our audience actually walks away having spent less time needing to consume a bunch of content to get the same information that they would have gotten otherwise reading 10 of the same articles, really. Yeah. And I think there's something also about removing it from from the context of social, where we know that so many folks consume their news or, or, or get exposed to news on social media platforms, which is fine. But I think that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't definitely doesn't encourage sort of calmer thinking, uh, as you as you were saying, Jacob, uh, and sort of more more nuanced, you know, takes and reporting, it's very responsive and, and reactive and, and very quick, which can be useful, but is not useful for everything. Um, and the other thing it doesn't really encourage is is uh, slower, longer, deeper thinking about it, right? Uh, we all know that, you know, if you see a, a 10,000 word article fly by on Twitter, you're not necessarily going to stop and read it. it it's you might bookmark it and then forget about it. It's just, it turns into this whole, like, you have to come up with a process for how are you going to remind yourself to come back to this thing? Whereas something in your email, it's like, you might, you might go through it and, and sort of, you know, read the, uh, you know, what's in the newsletter, but a lot of that is linking out to other stuff. So if there is something that you want to read, you can either flag that, that, email or open that link in a browser and just keep it open in a browser tab. It's just a little bit of a different workflow that I think fits better and actually encourages people to spend more quality time with the the news and the articles and the, the reporting that is important to them. Ironically, the best newsletters, they all link out, but they don't actually require you to click to get all the information that you need. You know, as you build a relationship with the reader, you just start to figure out what is the most important information to pull from this. And I think that's that's a big reason why Morning Brews newsletters have been so so good is because we now really know what does our audience need to be informed every single day. Uh, so we do link out, but you know our hope is that the the story that snapshot is sufficient to inform the audience. When it comes to newsletters, a lot of them are by individuals. It's kind of like reflecting this shift in uh, people following people versus people following publications. Um, and I think that applies directly to newsletters. I feel like it's it stemmed from newsletters, right? Like everybody that has an audience is now having a newsletter to kind of get more in-depth thinking, to build their community, to kind of grow that. Um, and so I think that's just kind of like a larger industry trend. That's you know, how does that play into this like media space in general? If more people are going to be interacting in a one-to-one manner, in a, in a more private way with in, with an individual over a publication than as a brand, like how do you capture that attention? I think still to this day, the largest newsletters are still run by publishers. And I think that's just, that's always going to be the case simply because 
media companies have an entire organization that is dedicated to the production and distribution and promotion and sales of content. Whereas like an individual can only do so much, right? Like by day, the B2B team at Morning Brew is like 10 or 11 people. We put out nine newsletters a week, right? I put out two newsletters by myself. I can only do so much, right? That, that like the, the, the Morning Brew team, like I've got an entire team, right? Jason and his entire team sell my newsletters, right? I don't have to think about that. I, I think about it, but I don't have to worry about it because I know that his team is worrying about that. There is a separate growth team that is responsible for growing the newsletters and making sure the audience continues to grow. We've got a product team that makes sure that the, you know our landing pages work and our conversion tracking works and all of that. Not to mention we have a graphics team that do amazing artwork. And, and, and so when you think about that, like there are dozens of people who are participating in the growth of our newsletters, whereas I've got one. There's only so much I can do. So I think, yes, there is something to be said about the individual creating a newsletter, and that's a fantastic. But I do actually think that publishers are going to get better with their newsletters. They already are. Uh, we are light years ahead of them still, and I'm not afraid to say that. But like they are going to get better and their audience reach is just going to be far broader uh, than any individual creator can have. I think that gives us a pretty solid kind of state of the industry and where newsletters are at today and some of the trends that we're seeing there. I want to get into some of the new entrants in the space and most notably Facebook. Yesterday, just announced that they are going to be trying to do something in the newsletter space, maybe similar to Substack. You know, we have Twitter and Review uh, that was just announced last week. So Jacob, before we started the show, you seemed like you had some hot opinions on Facebook getting into the newsletter space. Oh, my feelings on Facebook doing anything with media. (laughs) Okay. Um, So look, Facebook and media historically do not have a great relationship, right? Like, you know, early media companies, they got addicted to Facebook traffic. They loved it. You know, like you could build a massive, you could get a ton of people to see your content on Facebook. And then one, one day Facebook was like, well, no, this, this doesn't make sense. Like we're, we're, we're losing so much value by just giving all this traffic away. We're a business and we want to make money. So they said, suddenly you have to start paying for all that exposure. And a lot of publishers who had built their entire business on the back of that concept of free traffic, they got really screwed. And there was no real like middle, like middle step. It was just like one day, cool. This is what we're doing. Um, Facebook doesn't care about publishers, right? They do their PR hits and they do, they, they do a great job with that, but they don't care, right? They care about what's in the best interest of Facebook, which look, I don't hold that against them. They're a business. They need to do what they need to do. But Facebook is a walled garden, right? Facebook is is built the same way that AOL was built, where it was meant to keep you inside of the ecosystem. They didn't want you leaving, right? Which is different than how some other platforms work, where you know the they don't care as much if you leave. Like Google is literally built for you to leave Google, right? You got to go to somebody else's site. So you know Facebook will dangle a bunch of money, get a bunch of creators over there. Um, you know some people might do all right. My advice to any creator that wants to launch a newsletter is do not ever trust Facebook with that. Um, really, you know, I think John Steinberg, who is the um, the founder of Cheddar, he said in an event once, you know, if a company like Facebook offers you a check, you take the check, but you can never expect to get that check again because they will never give you the money again. So like, cool, take the money, but just know that that's the last time you're going to get it. Uh, I... I there are other platforms that are better for building newsletters on. I, 
you would have to literally like make it possible for me to retire for the rest of my life for me to move my newsletter over to Facebook. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. One is, of course, Facebook is going to launch this. Like, it's just a, a thing that Facebook does. They have something in every category. Um, anything that is seeing any traction, they will will launch uh, a competitor for it. Most of them don't uh, stand the test of time. Most of them don't work. Uh, I don't. You know, I, I'm sure that we will see people who. People in organizations that already have a large Facebook following that is not just following, but actually engaged, I think might see some, some success and some, you know, that'll be who this product is for. I don't think anybody should expect to be building a, uh, an audience on Facebook from, from the ground up, uh, these days. Uh, I think that's very challenging. And I, th- I don't think that they necessarily will, will give you the tools to do that. I think the, uh, this is largely a response, I think, more so to Twitter acquiring review and sort of, you know, pre-announcing that they're going to be rolling that into uh, into other Twitter features. It seems like it'll be part of the Super Follow program coming later this year. Um, but uh, so, of course, Facebook will do something like it. But it, at this point, it's such a different product. I it doesn't, I don't think, make entire entirely make a lot of sense. Um, Twitter is a place that a lot of people who have newsletters go to promote their newsletters and acquire new subscribers. Facebook, not so much. Uh, a lot of newsletters are also people who have large Twitter followings monetizing those followings, and I think the same is not as it is. It is true that there are some uh, some people who do that up from you know have those followings on Facebook, but I think that number is a lot smaller. I like the phrase that Substack is the place where people go to monetize their Twitter following. Right, and Twitter figured out that why would they want some other company to monetize Twitter followings when they can do it themselves? Like Twitter buying review is a fantastic play. I could talk about that for hours, but I won't because this podcast does have to end one day. Yeah, I agree. And I think Facebook is just trying to do the same thing. They're trying to give you a reason to not leave and not use another platform. If you have that following on Facebook, I've heard anecdotally that the there is at least one high uh, high ranking uh, Substack member who came off of Facebook. But I don't think that that's as common as as coming from Twitter. So I think it's their largest, actually. It's uh, it's this it's letters from an American, um, Heather Cox Richardson. I, I believe she's a professor and she does like a daily newsletter about the history behind today's politics. And she had a huge Facebook group and then decided one day to launch uh, the newsletter about it. And she, I think, is now earning over a million dollars right. with that newsletter. So, you know, Facebook would like to keep that on property. And I, I think that makes sense for them. And maybe future version, future people like her will stay on on Facebook. But the other problem is Facebook, I, I guess Twitter has this reputation also, of, has a little bit of a questionable product reputation. So like, if Facebook, if you build your, your newsletter on Facebook, and then they decide, oh, this isn't really working, no one cares about it, uh, and they, they shut it down, like, where does that leave you? The good news is that hopefully, if you can export your 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 emails, your email list out of it, you can move them someplace else. Uh, that is one thing that I think is unique about, you know, the newsletters is unlike the closed social platforms is being able to move from Substack to review to something new that comes up, uh, you know, in the future is immensely beneficial to the creators. If Twitter turns review into a way better way to acquire users or to you know, construct your newsletter, design your newsletter, you can switch pretty easily. Um, but it also makes sure that the monetization and the cut that every platform is taking stays competitive because they, they know you can pick up and leave, which I think is super important. It's kind of like the podcasting ecosystem. Like it's, it's, it's fragmented in the sense of where you view the newsletter 
doesn't really matter. I can view it in Apple, you know, mail, Outlook. I can get it through like an RSS feed on the website. Um, like you're, like you're not locked into a platform, which allows for like the interoperability and a bit more freedom of, you know, how and when you can actually access the newsletter, uh, which I think is super interesting. But then it does make it difficult for brands though, right? Because it, it's not an easy like buy. It's not like, oh, hey, we can just go to, you know, Facebook and get this massive like reach across all these different verticals and audiences. That's like right now it seems like it's a bit more selective by industry trends or uh, by a certain publication, uh, and it makes it a bit more just I guess more work for brands to get involved. Is kind of like my my view on that, Jason. What what are your thoughts? I mean, you live and breathe this every single day. When you look at a company like a Morning Brew, like we don't have any programmatic or display or anything like that. And while that was, I think, a slower start, that focus on like partnership and, you know, very high touch creative is something that has allowed us to, you know, kind of like scale and grow very responsibly and create, you know, ads that feel like content and perform. And so like what you lose with that scale is that like that degree of high touch. And so I think there are some brands that just want like eyeballs and efficiency and a lot of those kinds of things. And I think these, getting to work with a Facebook to achieve that is going to be great for some of those brands, but there is a huge and growing, you know, subsection of brands that want, you know, that want to reach and really resonate with a more targeted kind of like, you know, what we call like a, a quantity of quality, uh, you know, type section of audience. It brings me to the kind of, kind of like this ongoing like privacy conversation about how and in what way the pendulum is going to swing when we're kind of stepping back from our like hyper targeting. And it's these interesting, you know, niches and verticals like a newsletter um, that to me starts to provide like a lot of value to, to brands uh, when we're taking away cookies, when we're trying to figure out what a, like a privacy sandbox is, you know, this really aligning yourself contextually with a brand with content uh, an environment that is still, I would say not that cluttered. Um, is a good spot to be. And like, I think these are the areas that we're trying to find, you know, especially here at the lab. And what I'm trying to find is what is this kind of like next pocket of really interesting attention based, you know, media opportunities for, for, for brands and newsletters that just continues to pop up as a place and where, um, you know, it, it's, it's a good spot for, for, for our brands to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess one, one real quick point I'll make just to kind of reaffirm that is, and this is why I've always liked being on the B2B side you know, we've always been a direct business. We never really had the opportunity to pivot to programmatic because B2B advertisers weren't buying that way, right? Like they're, they're, they they were never buying like hyper-targeted ads because like that's just not the world that they operated in. So, you know, we've always operated from this perspective of if we find the right people and we create the right content, advertisers will want to be against that, right? Because you are contextually related to the content and the people are curious about that content at that particular time. So they want to see ads about that prior to cookie based advertising. Like there were a whole bunch of ad networks that tried to do that, right? You could find a finance related ad network that only ran ads on finance sites. You could find a car related ad network. So, you know, the pendulum will swing back to that whole contextual side of things and more likely directly sold, you know, whether that's using, you know, things like PMPs and, and, and all that, like, Sure, but it'll be a lot more direct sold, uh, which, I mean, 
that's morning brews, bread and butter. So like, you know, we're not reaching hundreds of millions of people, but we are reaching millions of the right people. And, and being able to, to sell targeted contextually related ads to that is very good. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you nailed it. And it's, it's an interesting opportunity to also like kind of like rethink the idea of native content and native advertising. And because like you can do it in a way where it is, you know, contextual and kind of like fits in from a visual perspective, you can do it in a way that you can do it in tons of different ways. And like, you know, even the way that we do it, our, you know, our creative director likes to talk about this idea of, you know, standing out by fitting in. And I think that is something that is really, really powerful um, that we've seen. And with the, you know, Jacob and I talk about this all the time, like, especially with B2B, there is a, there are a lot of B2B companies that are also excited about this, you know, this new way of advertising as well, where you can have fun with the content too. Like, you know, we, we often talk about in B2B, that second B being a C, you know, and it's like, there are people on, you know, on the other end of that advertising that are making these decisions. They're just not looking at their wallet when they're making the decision, they're looking at a, you know, a corporate budget but it's still like people. And so, you know, there, there are new and interesting and engaging ways to really make the case for why, you know, like a SaaS change might make a lot of sense. In a shocking twist of fate, scientists have discovered that businesses are made of people. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we've been, we've been uh, talking about this idea a lot recently about context and about moving away from, Worrying, especially with with everything that's going on with uh, data privacy and concerns around that, as well as, you know, consumers shifting behaviors, really refocusing on context as a great way to reach the consumers or businesses that you were trying to reach, uh, because it removes a lot of the complexity and also allows you to speak to them in a contextually aware way where you, you sort of understand what what the context is and who you're talking to and what their priorities are. Um, and, you know, I think that has a lot of benefits that when we move to digital away from, obviously that was context was everything in the analog world. When we moved to digital, everyone got excited about the data and precise targeting and kind of forgot that uh, automating all of that, you lose some of the benefits um, and uh, of, of understanding that context and being able to engage in a deeper, more meaningful way, because you have the the sort of contextual relationships there. So I, I think that's, you know, it's something we've been talking about across the board. We've talked about it a lot when we talk about what's happening in social, but I think it obviously applies here as well. Thinking about some of the challenges and how media companies are are developed. I mean, Jason and Jacob I'm and, and, and Adam here, I'm curious, like, what are some of those potential challenges right now that newsletters need to overcome uh, to progress them forward? I mean, there, you know, there, there, of course, there, there is a lot of competition, of course. And like, so I'll actually, you know, even, even speak to the monetization component of that, you know, we, we are competing against a lot of newsletters and as Morning Brew, you know, really over the last two years has, you know, done this shift from newsletter company to newsletter and podcast company now to media company that, you know, yes, expands the scope of the content that we can create, create, who we talk to, in what industries, um, but that also increases our competitive set. And so, you know, as we continue, like my team is in market trying to have a lot of these conversations, it's a constant also like re-education and, you know, telling of the narrative of 
who Morning Brew is, why we exist, who we are talking to, all of those kinds of things. Um, and it's it, it gets candidly like complicated when I get asked, like, who is your competitive set? It's like kind of everyone, you know, at this point, like, you know, more, are you talking about from a newsletter perspective? Are you talking about from a business content perspective? Are you talking about from like a medium perspective? And then it's also like, you know, email, audio and, you know, and content and, or, you know, virtual events. And I think that is, that is a challenge to a lot of newsletter companies, to a lot of media companies. You know, we have a, you know, we have a 35, I have a 35 person org, you know, that, so that enables us to cover off on a lot of different categories and a lot of different, you know, focus areas, but for, especially for the, you know, the newer companies, and we touched on this earlier, it takes, you know, it kind of like, it takes a village. It takes people focused on certain areas in order to, in order to really grow, like in sales, you need coverage, like you need collateral, you need ideas, like you need a lot of those different types of things that is not really satisfied by, you know, a handful of people, you really need, you know, a full multi-departmental org. You know, I, I think looking at the broader ecosystem sort of in, in relation to what Jason was just, was just talking about is development of the ecosystem outside of the core. You can send a newsletter to a lot of people, uh, I think is, is going to be helpful in making it possible for more of these sort of individual entrepreneurs and individual you know, small teams to really get started. The fact that if you as a one or, or two people, if you want to do what Morning Brew does and also start launching a podcast, for example, which is something that a lot of newsletter uh, writers are doing or interested in doing, it's really complicated to be able to charge to, to charge people for a podcast at this point. It's even more complicated if you want to charge them, you know, one monthly fee for a newsletter and a podcast. And I think that that ecosystem is probably coming. I think that that's actually one of the things that Twitter is probably going to be a little more focused on with their tools integration is giving you like one paywall that you can drop in front of uh, a variety of content. But right now that is still a pretty fragmented space. It's still pretty, it still takes a lot of custom work to, uh, and there are platforms that can do it. Um, but it, it does take a little bit of custom work to, to get it done. Um, and so I think that we are, you know, maybe, 12 to 24 months away from it being possible to have, you know, a small one to five person team run and something that looks like a, a media empire. Uh, and I think that's going to be really exciting. When, when the only limit at that point is your bandwidth for producing content, not your ability to distribute that content, I think it will be, uh, it, it will be really interesting. And I think we will see some of those grow into full, full fledged media you know, empires with sales teams and, uh, you know, and, and multiple channels and multiple, uh, you know, people doing the reporting, but, uh, some of them will also stay as, you know, one person teams and they'll just have more reach in different channels. And I think that's also really exciting and interesting. Absolutely. And it just, there's just like this energy around these newsletters around podcasts, these kind of like creative economy. And uh, Jason, I'm going to give you a softball here, but really for brands, like how do they capture this, right? Like, like what are the opportunities within the space today so that brands can start to advertise and get involved in the space and learn the best practices as this, is it going to be a trend uh, and a medium that I think is going to continue to be uh, developed and, and improved upon uh, as we go forward um, for consumers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great prompt. Thank you. Love, <laughs> love, love, 
<laughs> let, let me go softball. Um, no, it's, um, you know, the, the way that we work with brands and it's, it's been selling like, yes, you know, morning brews story, the morning brew brand, but you know, the fact that our content itself is great. The fact that our audience is great and it is a community and the fact that like, you know, we have a 40% open rate on, you know, on the newsletter, which means that of the, you know, 2.8 million people that we send it out to, there are well over a million people that literally open it and read it every day. And so that kind of relationship that we've been able to develop, that kind of engagement that we've been able to nurture is something that is, you know, a lot of brands really do want to participate in. And, you know, we have, we have these like three uniques on our team that we focus on. We've, we've been kind of very loyal followers of the book, the business book traction. Um, And so we, you know, we have these three uniques and the first and most important is this like concept of partnership. And what that means for, you know, brands too, is that, you know, we approach our brand partners, you know, as if it's a two two way street and we do everything in our power to make sure that that relationship is not transactional and that, you know, our partners like enjoy working with us and they really understand how morning brew operates. Um, there is this, like we, you know, we touched on this like hands-on type of component. And so if we have, you know, become experts in how to communicate to this audience, one of the things that we provide to our brand partners is this service where like, let's work together, give us your messaging points and your talking points and let's work together to, you know, kind of transform that and translate that into a tone and voice that will also make sense for our readers. Um, and something that, you know, I touched on earlier as well is like, we've been able to prove that that's something that also performs. And so, you know, for brands looking to get into the space, I think that, you know, the biggest kind of like takeaway and something that we really take to heart is this, like, you know, this idea of working together and working very collaboratively to leverage the expertise of like why brands come to morning brew to begin with. It's like not just to reach the audience, but it's how we reach the audience. And I think that is a really big differentiating factor in why like a lot of what you see in the newsletter, the way that we write the ads, like people will write back, our audience writes back to us all the time saying if they liked an ad or didn't like an ad and have a conversation about it. And sometimes we put them directly in touch with the brand. And so it's like, it's a lot different of a relationship and environment and ecosystem that we've, been, that we've been able to develop. Yeah. I mean, just as these newsletters continue to build their own personalities, you know, there is a style that each newsletter kind of puts forward with their ad creative. I think brands be comfortable with something that is not really dry, right? Be comfortable, you know, with doing something that might seem a little uncomfortable with, you know, when it comes to, you know, ad copy, we did a phenomenal ad for Slack um, months ago. And it, that was a good one. It was, it was some of the, like, I think I had seen that ad a couple weeks before I finally was going to join morning brew. And I was like, wait a second, these are the types of ads are going to be in my newsletters. This is fantastic. Like this, we're, <laughs> we're going to crush it. Right. And like, it's very little about like sign up for Slack, use Slack for business, you know, for the, it's, it's communication, all that. And it was more just a story. Be mm-hmm. comfortable with, with fitting into this tone and the voice that an individual newsletter has. The other side of that though, is understand that it's going to be more work, right? Like programmatic is super simple. You create some banner ads, you throw them up and send them out to the pipes of the world and hope that they show up on a bunch of sites. When you're working with, with, you know, with our brand partners, we're going to build something that is custom for you. We're going to spend time, understand your goals 
and build something custom. So yes, it will take more time, but um, I won't brag about our conversion rates, but our, our clicks are far higher than your standard 300 by 250 that Jason was selling at Yahoo years ago. <laughs> that's that's fantastic and uh for, for our listeners we'll put that that slack ad in the in the show notes so you can uh, take a look at that well jacob and jason thank you so much for joining myself and adam here on floor nine and really breaking down the business of newsletters as it is today uh where can our listeners find you on the internet uh jason you want to go first yeah uh my email is jason at morningbrew.com um feel free to email at, at any time to get in touch. Uh, also very active on, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Fantastic. Jacob. Yeah. And you can find me on, on Twitter, uh, Jay Codon. Um, I have so far saved my email inbox from being spammed by people. So I won't, I won't give you my email like Jason did, uh, but it is not, it is not first name at morning brew. So, um, try harder spammers. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I also run a newsletter called a media operator. So feel free to, you know, if you want to read about the building digital media businesses, you can, you can do that there. Well, thank you both. And I think our listeners have a weekend challenge. Go and try and find Jacob's email. Uh, if you find it, let us know. Uh, thank you both. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As a reminder, the referral program for Floor 9 is now live. You can check it out at refer.fm forward slash floor 9. Sign up for your customized link, get three referrals, and you get a limited edition Floor 9 t-shirt. There will be a link in the show notes, uh, so you can just click that and get started on the process of signing up. Next, if you're part of the IPG Media Brands organization, we have created a dedicated Floor 9 Teams channel. So join that channel, uh, You know, participate in the discussion around these episodes, help give us recommendations for future episodes, uh, and give us your feedback. We would love to uh, continue the conversation uh, there. And of course, if you're looking for more information about The Morning Brew or newsletters, you can reach out to Jacob and Jason uh, from The Morning Brew team. So thank you, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Music.